Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 123. You can find it on page 10 of your bulletin or on the screen behind me. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. The word of the Lord. Well, we'll get to uh, Psalm 123 in just a minute. I realized last week, if you weren't here last week, sorry, this will just take a second, but... um, I left out one of the things that I was supposed to say um, for the kids. The service got long, the sermon got long, and so I lopped off a section, and I didn't get to talk about the cowlicks. So just real quick, Psalm 122 was talking about coming to the house of the Lord and how we come and that God gives us this beautiful framework and that the framework um, helps us as we worship. But it's not all pleasant, right? There's a, a, in verse five, it talks about judgment. And the words of judgment that God brings us are always true. They don't always feel good, right? And my boys have inherited uh, calyx from me. It's where your hair is supposed to go one way and it goes the other way. And um, so I was gonna use that as an illustration that sometimes we have to say like, can you please go back upstairs and like wet that down, get in the shower, clean that up, that it, like, you can't leave the house like that, right? Um, and those are un, uh, unkind, sort of, right? But they're helpful in the long run, right? That sometimes even the, the, the true words that come to us, uh, they may not feel great, but they're always for our good. Make sense? That's the calyx. So I'll try not to miss any of the kids' um, illustrations for today. Uh, if you're completely new, we, we do this thing at the beginning of this sermon where we give the kids three things to listen for. So uh, kids, this week, uh, the three things to listen for. Uh, first one is angry prayers. The second one is Nehemiah. And then the third is a story about a well, or an illustration about a well. So, uh, grown-ups, we're going to look at why we need mercy and how we look for mercy. That's where we're headed today. Uh, Just by way of introduction before I pray, uh, we've been looking at the Psalms of Ascent this summer. Psalm 120 through 134, and um, they are songs that the Israelites would have sung on their three times a year journey from wherever they lived up to Jerusalem for worship, for the, to celebrate the feasts that the Israelites were commanded to celebrate every year. And these songs, we said last week, they aren't really an instruction manual. They don't tell us everything we need to know and how to do it step by step. They're more like a journal, right? And so this psalm is the first in the cycle of three. If you remember, uh, the 15 psalms, they break down into five sets of three. And the first psalm is always a psalm of distress. 
there's some sort of uh, longing or hope or frustration or fear that comes out in the psalm. And this is one of those. It is a song of lament. It is a song of enough. We have had it. We can't take it anymore. It's too much for us. There is this grieving that comes when life is too much to bear. We're going to talk about that and what we do in the midst of that now. But before we do, let me, let me pray. Lord God, you are kind in all that you do. As we look at this passage together, would you meet us in our frustration, in our fed-upness? Meet us. Be gracious. Give mercy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, kids, uh, I want you to think about this. Is it okay to pray an angry prayer? Do you have permission to pray an angry prayer to God? Well, the answer is yes. Yes, you do. Now, there's a way to do it poorly, right? There's a way to do it and sin, but that, there are plenty of examples in the scriptures and in the Psalms of prayers of righteous anger, of frustration, of looking to God and saying, where are you? Why are you doing it this way? We have had enough. It's too much. I want you to hear, even as we talk about these things, that right from the get-go, God can handle your angry prayers. We're going to talk in just a minute about how God is enthroned in the heavens, that he is huge and ruling and reigning, and the Psalms they also say that God is near to his people. And I want you to hold both of those things together. God in his kingly otherness and in his nearness. And know that it's okay for you to bring how you feel to God. Josh Moody, uh, there's a quote in your bulletin in the words of reflection. I'm just going to read a little bit of it. It's, he says this, there's a reason why Jesus frequently quotes from the Psalms and why the Psalms have proved a perennial favorite. They are real. They pull no punches. They tell it as it is. They scare people who wish the Bible said only things that sound pious and nice but they also help you reconnect between the objective and the subjective, between the truth about God and the truth of God, between fear and faith, between failure and trust, between suffering and joy, and between hate and forgiveness. The Psalms pull no punches. They tell it like it is, and we have the freedom to come to God even today and say we've had it. Come quickly. Give us mercy. How do we do that? Why, why do we cry for mercy? Well, the Israelites here are singing this prayer, and they're crying out for mercy because they've had enough. You can see that in verse 3. We've had more than enough of contempt. 
Now, there are a couple of scenarios here. The uh, commentators talk about a couple different scenarios. On this journey, um, as the Israelites are going from their hometown up to Jerusalem, likely would have encountered um, less pious Israelites, right? And so you would have gotten the kind of muttering as you pass through towns, as you pass by neighbors who would have said, what are y'all doing? Why are you doing that? That's weird. Or that, that there's that sense of guilt that overcomes someone who's less pious, right? That they feel that tension of uh, you're holier than thou, right? That kind of attitude. So there was some of that going on as, as, as the Israelites would have passed their neighbors. Uh, there would have been this scorn for those who are at ease, right? This contempt uh, that would have been put on them by fellow Israelites. Um, there, there is some... Uh, some commentators think that this is even connected, that the writing of this psalm is even connected with the return of ex, from exile of the Israelites. So if, you, if you've read the books of Nehemiah or Ezra, that as Nehemiah and the Israelites return from exile, as they come back and are rebuilding the walls, right, that there, there are uh, Samaritans and others sort of th- like throwing rocks at them, making fun of them for trying to rebuild the city. There is this uh, derisiveness, this scorn and contempt that comes on the Israelites as they return and try to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple. And so maybe that's what this is connected to. And so the Israelites sing this song. We even know from Jesus that actually the life of the Christian is to expect contempt. Jesus says, as they persecuted me, so they'll persecute you who follow me. We shouldn't necessarily be surprised that there are these uh, folks that are not happy about us following Jesus. Maybe for you that's coworkers or family members or whatever that may look like. But there is, there is a sense in which wherever direction this is coming from, that it can get to a boiling point, to a place where it's filled to the brim and any more is gonna overflow the bounds of the cup. Now, what, what is this contempt that we're talking about here. This contempt, uh, the easiest way to think of it probably is considering someone of no value. Considering someone of no worth. Um, A.W. Tozer um, says this, contempt is an emotion possible only where there is great pride. The error in moral judgment that undervalues another always springs out of the error that overvalues oneself. Do you hear that? So in order for me to undervalue you, to put contempt on you, means that I'm overvaluing me in some way. The contemptuous man esteems himself too highly for reasons that are invalid. His high opinion of himself is not based upon his position as a being made in God's image. He esteems himself for fancied virtues which he does not possess. He is wrong in his attitude towards himself and doubly wrong in his estimation of his fellow man. The error in his judgment is moral, not intellectual. Listen here, a couple of examples. It is in the realm of religion that contempt 
finds its most fruitful soil and flourishes most luxuriantly. It is seen in the cold disdain with which the respectable churchwoman regards the worldly sister and in the scorn heaped upon the fallen woman by the legally married wife. The sober deacon may find it hard to conceal his contempt for the neighbor who drinks. The evangelical may castigate the liberal in a manner that leaves slight doubt that he feels himself above him in every way. Religion that is not purified by penitence, humility, and love will lead to a feeling of contempt for the irreligious and the morally degraded. Contempt, it's wounding and it's painful to be considered of no value. Maybe uh, students, right, if you are unwilling uh, to participate in uh, gossip at the lunch table, right? You're trying not to, not to participate in some sort of gossip and you, you, get, uh, you get made fun of because you're better than everybody else. Or uh, maybe you don't cheat on an exam when everybody else is sort of cheating and um, right, there's this contempt that's thrown against you. Uh, college students, post-college, maybe, maybe it's in your dating relationship where you've decided to honor God's command not to have sex before marriage, and that's uh, just absurd to the world, to your friends that, who think, why would, you, why, why would you even draw the line there? Why would you follow Jesus in this way? Within your family, maybe it's in your screen practices or in your tithing, uh, that you think in a, in a culture where um, everything's about getting what's mine, that you would give to a church, just seems absurd, contemptuous. And there is this uh, zero value judgment given um, by others towards us. Should just say, after reading this and thinking through some examples, it is something we need to check our own hearts against, Right? I mean, this isn't really the point of the, the psalm, but I should, it's too, too, too good a moment to pass. We have to be careful. It's really easy for us to be contemptuous of others. Pick a, pick a thing, right? We, we, we know the Bible better than those churches, or we love the poor better than these people, or we, we get theology right better than those, or we... It's super easy, and we have to be careful. We can get easily fed up with it when it's pointed towards us, but we have to also watch out that we aren't ones putting contempt on others. So we cry for mercy because it's too much. It's too much, we can't handle it. As we think about how to look for mercy, this psalm is only four verses, and there's so much repetition here. Mercy gets repeated three times. Eyes, the eyes, uh, the looking, uh, gets mentioned four times in two verses. And so it's um, not too complicated to figure out what's happening here. Uh, let's look at it together, verses one and two. How do we look for mercy? What's the first step in looking for mercy? The first thing is that we look up we lift our eyes 
to you who are enthroned in the heavens. Now, um, if you were here a couple weeks ago, David Billingsley preached on Psalm 121, and that one starts like this. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And there's some, he mentioned, there's some uh, discrepancies amongst commentators on what it means to look to the hills. It could be that the hills are often where um, the idols would set up their spots of worship, their temples or statues or um, whatever. And so it could be that it was just common parlance to talk about looking, uh, when you're looking to the gods, that you would look to the hills. It could be that uh, the, the writer of the Psalms is talking about looking up to the mountain of the Lord, right, coming to Jerusalem and looking to the Lord himself. In Psalm 123 here in our passage, it's explicit. The author is looking beyond the mountains, right, higher than the mountains to God himself enthroned in the heavens. It's a great reminder to us that the Lord rules and reigns, is sovereign over every moment of our lives. And we live in a world that is his, not ours, right? He is in control and we are not. Our identities, our futures are not self-determinative. God controls everything. And so the first way to look to mercy is to look to the right place, the source of mercy. It is God himself enthroned in the heavens, the one who is able to give mercy to his people. And so we look to him. Verse 2 gives us this simile, right, that we should look to God for mercy as a, a servant looks to his master, as a handmaiden looks to her mistress. Now, I uh, should say, right, th- there are plenty of terrible examples of this master-servant relationship, right? That this would not be like chattel slavery um, that we know from our uh, country's history, but even still, this simile may, may hit you in a, in, a, in, a poor, in a bad way. And I understand that, but I'm hopeful that it actually helps accentuate what, what the psalmist is trying to say here. That we don't have a bad master. And even good servants of bad masters would do this. How much more should we, with a good master, look to him in this way? And what is, what is the way? How are we to look? Well, we're to look uh, with tremendous focus. The, the idea here is that the servant would be watching, you know, maybe from off, off to the side of the room, let's say there's a meal taking place, and that the master would just simply give a, a head nod or maybe a flick of the wrist or a finger or some sort of sign that maybe is imperceptible to everyone else And yet the servant is able to pick up on on the smallest gesture and know what he is to do, what she is to do, because of that communication between the master and the servant. It is that type of focus that the psalmist is calling us to look to God in the heavens. 
There's a book, I think Ed Welch wrote it. I meant to look it up. I apologize, I forgot. It's called When People Are Big and God is Small. I'm pretty sure that's Ed Welch. Uh, Maybe you've read it. I read it a long time ago. And I really only want it for the title for this, right? The, The idea is that it's easy for us to get into a situation where people seem big to us and God seems really small. And what the psalmist is calling us to is actually to flip our focus, No matter what's happening around us or with the people who are putting contempt on us, who are scorning us, our gaze is fixed on God enthroned in the heavens. Uh, A good example, this is Peter walking on the water. Do you guys remember this in the Gospels, right? Where Jesus comes to the disciples in the middle of the night and he's walking on the water and Peter, who's just, um, you know, no filter, just kind of wants to jump out of the boat and walk to Jesus and he does. And then he begins to see the waves, right? And as he sees the waves, he starts to sink. And so Jesus has to come and rescue him. It's, it's that type of focus, that no matter what's happening around us, that we're able to keep our focus on God himself. There is um, a prayer book, of pure, a collection of Puritan prayers called the Valley of Vision. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. If you're not, um, it's fabulous. Um, and if you struggle to pray and want to pray all of the emotions of the psalm, uh, you wouldn't expect to find it in a Puritan prayer book, but it really is, it's excellent. Um, the first one, the prayer called the Valley of Vision, um, talks about this paradox, right? It starts like this, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. And then he goes on. He says this, Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Now it's a weird, (laughs) that's a weird illustration, but I hope it conveys the point. In the well, right, where it is so dark and so deep, as you look up, right, that that the daytime can't even get in the way of you seeing the stars. I think that's a beautiful image for us, that no matter the depths of our frustration, the level of our, we've had enough, we can't take it, not one more second, if that's where you are, in that moment, in that darkness, your vision should be most clear as you look to Jesus. Now that's a struggle. Uh, We we can all tell stories, if we had time, of moments where we've struggled in in real suffering, in real times of doubt. It has been hard for us to see, and yet, what this Puritan author is saying, what the psalmist is saying is that our vision should remain fixed on God, on Jesus, no matter, no matter what. Do you notice the confidence in verse two? It may be small, but I just want you to see it, that this is not a prayer prayed solely out of frustration and solely out of anger. He says this, so our eyes look to the Lord our God 
until he has mercy upon us. Until he has mercy. We are going to continue to look. We are going to continue to wait to press in to his promises and trust him until he has mercy. The idea for mercy here is unmerited favor. It's that of grace. It is undeserved love and affection, kindness, where God is working for our good even though we don't deserve it. When we deserve the opposite, God gives us his kindness, his mercy. And how do we know? How would you know if you're in a moment of deep contempt right now, if people are being contemptuous towards you, if you are feeling the weight of scorn, how, how would you know? How would you have confidence that God is gonna give you mercy? Friends, it's, it's simply that Jesus came, born of a woman, lived a perfect life, fulfilled every requirement that you would not have kept and have not kept, that he died in our place, that he came, the scriptures say that he bore the contempt that we deserve. A friend of mine, uh, we have this uh, old RUF kind of database and it has lots of stories in it and this this one's one of my favorites. Um, So in, uh, some of you are Office, the Office fans, Um, In season six, uh, this is uh, at this point, I think not a spoiler alert, but in season six, there's a special episode where Jim and Pam finally get married. And um, it's kind of a mess of a day, if you remember the episode. Um, Pam has all these plans and everything seems to be uh, not going according to plans, right? Um, You know, she's, uh, her dress doesn't fit the way she wants it to. She rips her veil at one point and she's sitting and she's just so sad that she's ripped her veil and everything's supposed to be right. And you know what Jim does? Jim grabs the scissors off the table and he takes his tie and he holds his tie out and he just cuts his tie right off, like right, right about here. And she just, she just melts. In that moment, as Jim, who has it mostly together, enters into her brokenness, enters into her mess, and says, we're doing this together, it's you and me. We're coming up the aisle, right? You can come with the ripped veil, I'll have the, I'll have the chopped off tie. And it is the same for us that Jesus enters into our brokenness, into a situation where we are frustrated and angry, where we are upset, where we have had enough. And Jesus bears that contempt for us. He bears the shame and the scorn and he accomplishes everything that we need to be in relationship with him. And the spirit that is now at work in us reminds us of all that Jesus has done for us. Jesus is in us. God is with us. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. And we can be assured, even in the moments of our sadness, even in moments of difficulty, of contempt, of ridicule from others, that God is faithful to his promises. 
and he will always be faithful to his promises. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, you are kind. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit at work within us. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who accomplishes everything that we need for salvation. Father, we thank you for his love for us. We pray that you would help us to keep our gaze on you, to fix our eyes on Jesus until you have mercy. Lord, we thank you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.